All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 47, if you will. Genesis chapter 47. We began looking at the life of Joseph to remind ourselves that God is always with us, no matter what. But sometimes we need extra reminding that God is with us at our lowest points in life. When we've hit rock bottom. As we come to now chapter 47 of the book of Genesis, I draw to your attention this morning an interesting event in the life of Joseph that caused me to ask a question, a question that I find myself asking every year that I have been a pastor, which is now, I'm roughly 30 years into it, and so every year I find myself asking this question. Let's begin in verse 13 of chapter 47. Now there was no bread in the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. In other words, it's gotten really, 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 pause for effect, really bad. Whenever I read the Word of God, I always have a notepad next to me or even take my phone because as I read either for personal devotion or for studying and preparation for messages here at the church, I find myself as I am reading listing questions that I have about the passage, listing questions that I have that the passage reminds me of and to look into further and in a more deeper way. As we begin this portion of chapter 47, I once again am confronted with that question that I mentioned that I ask myself each and every year, and that is, how low does someone have to go before they reach out to God? Where is rock bottom, if you will? It's a term that we use. It's a term that is used to indicate a point of time in a person's life where they're willing, really willing, and motivated to change. As a Christian, I ask the question, in the lives of certain individuals who need to come to this point before they turn to God, reach up for God from that place, there are others who simply hear about Jesus, the love of Jesus, Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they just respond. But there are others of us, us, including myself, that God sometimes has to bring to a certain point, breaking us of our dependency upon ourselves before we will reach out to Him. We often use this term rock bottom when it comes to the issue of addiction. When someone is addicted to drugs, alcohol, etc., pornography, whatever it may be. When do they hit rock bottom? How bad does it have to get before they look to change and are motivated to do so? Well, that question doesn't have one singular answer. It is subjective to the fact that everyone is different, right? I have seen often in my ministry individuals who I were confident had hit rock bottom only to find that they just haven't gotten there yet. 
I've often said to myself, oh, how much farther can they fall? Wow, you can be surprised how much farther they can fall. When they lose their marriage, lose their job, lose their home. And yet, for some people, they have to come to a place of complete brokenness before they'll reach up for God. Things are bad in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. The famine is now taking its toll. The severity of it is extreme. There is no more money. The economic uh, infrastructure of Egypt has collapsed. And the people are starving. And this was enough to motivate them to come to Joseph in a position of brokenness and ask for help. Notice with me in verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. For the grain which they brought, Joseph bought the money, brought, excuse me, the money into Pharaoh's house. They have come to the end. Their financial resources have now been exhausted. They are at a point now where they have no one to help them and they can no longer help themselves. And now they have to rely on the only source of food in Egypt, and that is the storehouses that Joseph has created. Before we go any farther, I just want to say to you this morning that maybe you find yourself in a place where you feel you've hit rock bottom. I want to encourage you this morning that if that is truly the case, you've come to the right place. For God knows where you're at. He knows the situation that you find yourself in. And this is what he would say to you this morning. In Isaiah 41.13, should be on the screen behind me. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Or as Jeremiah came to his lowest point and revealed that in the book of Lamentations, verses, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. If you feel that you've come to that point today, and you've hit rock bottom, let me assure you of this. You are not out of the reach of God. For God can lift you up from where you are. Now, I'm going to be honest. He may have allowed this to occur in your life to get your attention, to draw your attention back to Him, possibly. But either way, I sh share with you this morning that this place that you are in is not a position of condemnation, but a position to allow you to realize your reality and that if you will reach out to God today, you will find his hand extended to you. The Egyptian people were starving. The money has been exhausted. 
Joseph has taken now whatever is left into the storehouses, that is the money, in verse 15. So when the money had, notice the word, failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Josh, uh, Joshua, Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. They've come to a point where they had nothing more to give. Their brokenness seemed to be predicated upon their prosperity. And once that prosperity had been exhausted, they were willing to just reach out and ask for help. I've noticed that each and every person that God is working in to break them of whatever dependency that they may have may be different. But for many people, it is the issue of prosperity, money. Have you ever noticed that in our nation, whenever we are faced with a crisis, our first go-to course of action is to throw more money at it? Isn't that amazing? It often appears that certain course of actions aren't even considered. If we have a problem in the educational system, we'll throw more money at it. If we have a problem in the pandemic, we'll throw more money at it. It is clear to me that the United States of America is dependent on its prosperity. And I often wonder if God is truly going to get our attention, does he need to deal with that? Possibly break us of that prosperity. Bring us to a point where we no longer can be dependent on our own ability to rescue ourselves, but realize that we need God to rescue not only us, but the nation in which we inhabit. Now, trust me, I'm thankful to have grown up in the United States of America. I love this country. But I also have to be honest with myself and with you. We are going in the wrong direction in so many different ways. Money is not the answer to all of our problems. Remember when Jacob finally decided earlier on that the only place that food could be obtained was in Egypt. Now, Jacob was a wealthy man. He had the means by which to purchase food. But because food wasn't available in Canaan, he realized that his money was truly worthless. Unless he could find food to purchase, his money was not going to feed him. And we asked the question, And we reminded ourselves in that question that money can't buy everything, can't it? If something is not available to us, money does us no good. I think all of us, when we saw the supply shortages over the pandemic, which are understandable due to the course of action that we all took across the world of lockdowns, We were shocked to see so many empty skews in our store, but we realized it, right? We realized that, okay, it happens, and we are blessed to have what we have, but we realized that it didn't matter how much money we had in our pocket, if the product wasn't available, we couldn't purchase it. 
And it caused us to rethink some things, and our global dependency is one of them. I was reading an article just this week that maybe you have seen around the Chicagoland area these monstrosity warehouses being built. There's one being built right across the street from our house. So I did a little digging and I found out that there are 48 projects total in the Chicagoland area of these warehouses, totaling a total of 17.2 million square feet. Think about that for a minute. 17.2 million square feet. And the primary purpose is the hopes of bringing back manufacturing to the United States of America so we are not globally dependent on the entire world. And when there's a mask mandate, we realize, oh, there's no one who makes masks here in America. Money is very, very limited. These people are now realizing that. The money has failed. Notice what he says there. The economics have failed. They have no more money. So Joseph, and I love this about Joseph, seeing the people's vulnerability, Joseph being a man of God does not exploit that vulnerability. He doesn't take advantage of the people. Knowing that their backs are up against it, Joseph begins to work with them to provide for them the food in which they need, but also to create an economy once the famine actually ends. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. These individuals have now come to the point, the lowest point of their lives. And notice with me as we continue reading. In verse 16, then Joseph said to them, give me your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and of the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all of their livestock that year. Now, before you think that Joseph is now handicapping them even further, please know this, a couple things. First, you may say, well, why didn't they just eat the livestock? You know, they, they could go on a keto diet with all the protein in which they had. Well, let's understand, for people at, in this position, it would be like them eating their tractor, okay? These were the tools in which they used to farm the lands in which they had. So they were very reluctant to kill these animals for food because they knew that they were going to be in need of them. Now, you may think that Joseph is taking advantage by taking the livestock from them in exchange for the service. He could have just started a welfare program and just handed out the grain, but he knew he had to preserve the economy going forward. See, Joseph had an ability that they did not. They couldn't feed themselves. Mood music. Joseph couldn't, I'm sorry, they couldn't feed themselves. 
So how were they going to feed their livestock? Their livestock were were going to die anyway because of the famine. Joseph, taking the livestock, he had the ability to feed the livestock and to preserve that them because Joseph had a bit of information that they did not have and that was that the famine was going to end and they would have to once again build the infrastructure of the Egyptian economy and start over again. It was brilliant for Joseph to do this but that only lasted a year. That only lasted a year. Notice with me. Verse 18. And when that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from you, that, my Lord, that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread? And we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Extreme situations often require extreme measures. This was a common occurrence in this culture. When one couldn't pay off their debt, they could offer themselves in servitude of that individual to pay off their debt. The slavery that the Bible talks about, the servitude of the Bible, that the Bible talks about is not paralleled with the slavery that we are accustomed with and are constantly being reminded of of our history past. The cruelty towards individual races... And please, let us understand that the, the issue of slavery is not gone from, from around the world. It still occurs, and often the slaves are children. But in this case, they said to Joseph, this is all we have. We have ourselves and we have our land. By doing so, and Joseph accepting their proposal, they placed themselves in a position of provision. For it would be Joseph's responsibility to tend to them, to feed them. That was the responsibility of one who would take that deal. And that's exactly what Joseph did. But he went one step further. He gave them seed in which they may plant and work for themselves, retaining their dignity. Again, each and every scholar that I have read stated that Joseph approached these people with integrity and dignity and allowed them to work for what they had earned and therefore have an infrastructure to build on when the famine would cease. Now, before we go any farther, notice that once again, the money is gone, the prosperity has disappeared, and this is all that they have left. I'd like to direct your attention to the New Testament for a moment, and I'd like to take you to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you will. So turn there in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'd like to show you one of the dangers of prosperity. This is really important for our discussion this morning. 
Paul the Apostle wrote the book of 1 Timothy. He was a Jewish man, a Pharisee, before becoming a Christian. He was well-versed in the history of Israel. In fact, Pharisees were required to at least memorize the first five books, the Pentateuch, or the Torah in Hebrew. But most Pharisees had a large portion, if not the entire, Old Testament memorized. You guys having a trouble with Jesus wept? You feel a little bad now? Paul the Apostle realized that there's a real danger with prosperity based upon the history of the Israeli nation, the Jewish people. Throughout the Old Testament, you will discover that when Israel prospered financially is when they seemed to allow themselves to go astray following pagan gods and disobeying God. Jesus said you can't love God and money because you're going to end up hating one and serving the other. But Paul the Apostle makes a more direct appeal here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's something that we need to be aware of. Now, I believe that all of us here are prospering. And I say that not based on our comparison to one another here, but based on our comparison to those around the world. Did anybody have to go to an outhouse this morning to, to go to the bathroom? No. no, nobody, just me? No. Of course we didn't. How many of you had to go down to the river to draw water for the day? None of us had to. People from around the world and various areas of the world would look at our living conditions and be amazed, wouldn't they? We, we know that in our hearts, and we should be thankful for it. However, though, there's a real danger to, with prosperity. And that danger is that we lose our dependence on God and become independent of Him, thinking that our prosperity, our money, is going to solve all of our problems. One pastor asked years ago, why does a Christian in America have to walk by faith? It almost seems optional, doesn't it? We are so richly blessed. But Paul the Apostle wanted to remind Timothy of the danger of money and of prosperity. And it's not wrong, let me make it clear, it's not wrong for a Christian to be wealthy. As long as you possess your wealth and your wealth does not possess you. And the answer to proper governance of our wealth is called stewardship. Understanding that all that we have, God has given us, and we are mere stewards of what God has blessed us with. It all belongs to Him. But notice with me what Paul says here, starting in verse 3. Let's go down to verse 6. For he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Not that great gain leads to godliness and or contentment. The Bible teaches that contentment is a choice that we make. To be content with what the Lord has blessed us with. Now, some have argued, and I have been challenged, when saying that, 
But doesn't that hinder wanting to move ahead in life? Doesn't that hinder or create uh, stagnation, apathy, complacency, etc.? Contentment is simply being content with what God has given you, allowing God, if he so desires, to give you more and then being content with that or having less and being content with that. That was exactly Paul's position throughout the New Testament. But in verse 7, for we, are brought no, we have brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having, now notice what he says here. Here is the qualification or the definition of contentment, okay? Verse 8, and having food, clothing, a Tesla, an iPad. If your Bible says that, please return it. Notice what he says here. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be what? Wow, a lot different, huh? lot different. We are so convinced in America that if we just have certain material possessions, we are going to be happy. And I can't believe that year after year, people buy into this, only to find once they obtain that thing, whatever it may be, it hasn't satisfied and fulfilled them the way they had anticipated and expected. Therefore, looking to something else. And if it's not material things, it's relationships, etc. There's always something that we believe is going to create in us happiness that once we obtain it, we realize that it can't provide what we were looking for from it. In verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Doesn't sound too good, does it? Verse 10. For the love of money is, the, is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We have to resist the temptation of believing that when we discuss God providing each and every one of our needs, that what he is committing to is providing a certain quality or standard of living. Paul said it very clearly. Food, clothing, be content in these things. If you are blessed here with food and clothing and so much more, how much more should we be content with what God has blessed us with? Prosperity can be extremely dangerous, folks. I want to make that clear. And I believe our nation is coming to the point where they now realize under the weight of $31 trillion worth of debt that we can't print money anymore, that we cannot throw money at every problem that our society is facing, and expect it to bring about change and fix the woes of our society. We need to get off that, we need to get off that don't we? And we need to realize that money is limited and does not have the capability 
of providing those things which it cannot purchase. Going back to our text, if you'll flip back with me to Genesis chapter 47. In verse 20, Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of, Egypt, uh, of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to another, the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations with Pharaoh that which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their lands. And then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have uh, bought you and your lands this day for Pharaoh. Look here, is the seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And this was in preparation to return the economic infrastructure. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your food and for those of your household, and as food for your little ones. So they said, notice their reaction. This is not a bad thing. Notice their reaction. Verse 25. They said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servant. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. Later on, you will discover that the land again returned to the people after years of the famine passing. This wasn't a necessarily a totalitarian move. It was Joseph's brilliance that allowed for their continued dignity and building an infrastructure in one of the worst times of Egypt's history. And as a result... The people were spared and survived one of the most horrific famines that Egypt had ever, ever experienced. I love what Greg Laurie said. I'd like to read it to you if I may. He said, sometimes the Lord will let us hit rock bottom and we will have no human solutions. Maybe you hit with a financial crisis and you cannot use your credit card because they have been revoked. You can't borrow money from your friends because they have been hit up too many times. They're done with you. You can't get the solution from any person. You can say, I am in a difficult situation. I have tried everything. The only thing that I can do now is to trust God. And that's good. Now God is going to show you what you need to do and what He is capable of if you will trust Him at this time moment. The Bible is replete with individuals that have come and hit rock bottom. But no other example in Scripture is greater than the one that Jesus gave himself in Luke chapter 15, if you'll turn there in your Bibles with me. 
In Luke chapter 15, we have one of the greatest parables that Jesus ever spoke, in my opinion. It is the parable of the prodigal son. And I'd simply like to read this with you this morning so that you may understand that even if we make bad decisions that lead to severe consequences, that drop us to the rock bottom place in life, then we may know that God will lift us up. And we can know how God will respond to us when we seek Him out at that moment and we could be assured of His acceptance. That's what this is all about. Now, there are many facets to this parable, but it's that facet that I would like to concentrate on this morning, if I may. Notice with me, starting in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my portion, the portion of, of the goods that fall to me. And so he divided them his livelihood. Give me my inheritance now. That's what he's asking for. And in verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed into a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He hit Vegas. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine. Sound familiar? A severe famine in the land. And he began to want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country. And he sent him into the fields to feed the swine, which was absolutely undignified for a Jewish person. It was prohibited. It was the lowest point you could get to. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him him anything. But when he came to himself, there it is, the epiphany, when he finally realized how bad it had gotten, his circumstances had brought him to the place where no one could provide or save him, and more importantly, the rock-bottom position once again entailed the inability of him saving himself. But when he had come to himself, verse 17, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to, and to spare? And I will perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And I'm going to stop there for a minute. Because here it is. Realize that the rock bottom experience that he had brought him to his senses, led him to repentance, realizing that he had sinned against his father and more importantly his heavenly father. And he was going to plead for mercy to simply ask his father to restore him as simply one of his father's servants. This was what you would call brokenness before God. Pleading for mercy. 
And not only did that repentance occur in his mind and in his heart, it motivated him enough to return to his father's house, willing to experience whatever consequence may come, but was hoping and desiring his father would least take him back as one of his servants. But, notice with me, Sometimes the smallest words in the Bible have some of the most tremendous impacts on a person's life. And in verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and on his sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be married, for this is my son who was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. I stated earlier in our study of Joseph that there's a progression. Repentance leading to reconciliation, reconciliation leading to restoration. And that's what we see happening here with this son. The father wouldn't have it. No, no, you're not coming back as my servant. I'm going to restore you now that we have been reconciled through your repentance. I'm going to restore you once again to be my son. He put the robe on him, the robe that showed the authority of who he was, the signet ring, which allowed him to act on that authority on his father's behalf and on the sandals. Again, this is what Jesus Christ does for us. When we come to him or return to him, He doesn't just simply cast us off. Through our repentance, it leads to reconciliation through Him with God the Father, leading to our restoration. And this is what God does on our behalf. And there is no better example of one who has hit rock bottom than this prodigal son. No one is too far out of God's reach. For him to once again hear those words of repentance, reconcile him back to himself, and restore that individual to to whom he once was. Maybe you know somebody who has needed to hit rock bottom. Maybe it's you yourself who needed to hit rock bottom before change could be found. In my life, there was no greater example of this than my mother. My mom was a very proud, stubborn person. And for over 50 years, she struggled with alcoholism. I would witness to her each and every time that I saw her, before and after I got married, I would share the gospel with her and she didn't want to hear anything about it because she was confident that she was going to heaven because she was baptized as a Catholic. She was convinced that's all that it needed. And that she was a good person, better than others. And she, was, she just refused to listen to the free gift that God was offering her through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I began to pray. 
because I felt helpless. She wasn't listening to me anymore. But as I began to pray, something happened in my mom's life. Things begot became very, very bad. Because of the alcoholism, her liver began to fail. Then her kidneys. She was on a constant cycle or schedule of dialysis. And it came to a point where she was then hospitalized, weighing all of 82 pounds. And one Sunday afternoon, as we were at home praying for my mom, Dina felt led. She says, Eric, I need to go and talk to your mom. And I said, well, if you feel led, go. And sure enough, Dina went to visit my mom in the hospital in the condition in which she was. And she led my mom to Jesus Christ. And you know what happened? The Lord allowed her to leave the hospital a week later. She stopped drinking after 53 years and gave us three, four more years with my mom before taking her home to be with him. But the manner in which she had to come to rock bottom before that could occur was astonishing to me. But I'll say this, that that temporal discomfort and suffering that she experienced has led to an eternal weight of glory in and through Jesus Christ. And when I get to heaven, my mom will be there also ready to continue to nag at me for the rest of eternity. (laughs) It's amazing what some people have to go through to come to Christ. But if you're here today, I want to encourage you that as low as you may feel that you are, you are never too far from God.